We want to reflect on that great truth that we just sang of, and we'll turn in our Bibles this evening for our Scripture reading. We'll turn to Romans chapter 8. And this evening, we'll just, we're just going to have to chop up the chapter a little bit. We'll be looking at verses 1-4, through 4, and then we're going to skip to verses 28-39. through 39. And then afterwards, you'll grab your forms and prayers book, and we'll be reading Lord's Day 1 on page 201. And of course, I'm sure you remember that I'm going to ask the question and ask that you would respond in unison. So let's give our attention first to the reading of God's Word under the heading of Invincible Comfort. Invincible Comfort from Romans 8. Apostle Paul says in the first four verses, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then we'll move to verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknow, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge, any charge, against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the One who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God who is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, and all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We'll end our reading there and we'll turn now to page 201 in our forms and prayers. That's the little burgundy book. To Lord's Day 1. Some of you may be able to recite it from memory. The instructor asks us this question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. 
He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has delivered me from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ by His Holy Spirit also assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. And we flip the page to 202. How many things must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three, first, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. My most dear friends, 460 years ago, the Heidelberg Catechism was written in the year 1563. For nearly 500 years, this catechism, catechism meaning instruction using a question and answer format, for almost 500 years, it has been the faithful guide for the Reformed Church's instruction of the young and the old alike concerning the doctrines of the Old and the New Testament. I want to this evening, before we begin looking at Lord's Day 1, is actually start a little bit with the history of the Heidelberg Catechism. Coming out of a period of vacancy, usually catechism preaching can sometimes fall on hard times. But especially for our young people, we need to be constantly reminded of the goodness of having Reformed confessions. You see, brothers and sisters, our catechism is named after the city with which it was written in, which is the city of Heidelberg in Germany, which was ruled by the time, at that time, by a man named Frederick Elector III, who was actually the ruler of one-seventh of the country of Germany in what was called the Palatinate. The Palatinate. And he became prince of the Palatinate at 44 years old. But when he became ruler, uh, there was actually quite a bit of division in the Palatinate concerning specifically the Lord's Supper. Now we're going to get into differing views on the Lord's Supper later in the Heidelberg Catechism, but there were people in the Palatinate who had what we would call a Lutheran view of the Lord's Supper, which essentially is that Christ's attributes are applied to the host and that you really are truly eating the body and blood of Christ. There is also present the Zwinglian view of the Lord's Supper, which is essentially that the Lord's Supper is nothing but a memorial. It's, It's a funeral where we remember the death of Christ. But then there was also present in the Palatinate a third view of which Frederick Elector himself was convinced of, which was the Calvinist view which we read about in Belgic Confession, Article 35. And so when Frederick became the leader of the Palatinate, these differing views about Christ and the Supper were beginning to cause quite a problem. 
And so it's said that when he was installed into the office of prince, he was quite a godly man, a very pious man, and it's said that he promised himself and his people that every night he would read God's Word and ask God for wisdom. Just like Solomon did. And he would conclude by reading Psalm 31. And so he went to Melanchthon, a Lutheran theologian, who was born in Heidelberg, and said to him, what would you have me do with these differing views on the Lord's Supper? And Melanchthon advised Frederick that he should appoint men to write a catechism, which would be the faithful guide of the churches in Germany. And so he appointed two men. The first man's name was Zacharias Ursinus, who was only 28 years old at the time. And then he appointed the preacher of the Holy Ghost Church in Heidelberg named Caspar Olivianus, who was 26 years old at the time. And he gave them this problem. I want you to resolve the issue and unite the Reformed churches of the Palatinate. And so they get to work, and in 1563, the catechism was finalized, and so Frederick invited professors and pastors from all over Europe to come to the castle in Heidelberg, and they all met there for the first reading of the Heidelberg Catechism. And so they gather in that room, and they listen to the catechism read, And listen to this. Joel Beakey mentions this in his lecture on the Heidelberg Catechism. He says that the delegates were so overwhelmed by its reading that not a single person spoke up or suggested a single change. The whole catechism was wholeheartedly accepted in one single shot. Consider, not to contrast in a poor way, but the other famous Reformed catechism, which is the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Catechisms, took five years arguing over every sentence and line within those confessions and catechisms. And this only took one meaning. It was wholeheartedly accepted. Even so much when John Calvin, who later died in 1564, when he was presented it in 1563, said that he also wholeheartedly agreed with the catechism. While only suggesting that one question be added, which is question 80, which also has to do with the Lord's Supper. So for nearly 500 years, the churches, the Reformed churches have confessed the Heidelberg Catechism. It has become an indispensable part of our faith. But you might ask the question, what does a Christian in 2022 gain from confessing something that's 500 years old? Let me put it another way. Should we confess the Heidelberg Catechism? There is a movement in the churches and also in some churches that call themselves Reformed to rid themselves of the creeds and confessions. It's not uncommon to meet people who will say, we have no creed but Christ. Have you heard this before? As if these creeds and confessions are stumbling blocks to real faith and people who are seeking the Lord. Should we confess them? 
Remember that when Ursinus and Olivianus and Elector, Frederick Elector, sought to write this catechism, they needed it for three reasons. They wrote it because it served as a catechetical tool to teach the youth. We might say that's a pretty good idea. They said it's a preaching guide for the laity that the people of God would be instructed in the Lord's Prayer, be instructed in the Law, and instructed in the Apostles' Creed. Every year they would learn about the life, the death, and resurrection of Christ, and God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit's work, and the purpose of the church on earth. Well, that's a pretty good reason. But most importantly, and what we need so desperately in our time today, is it served as a form for confessional unity. If we look around in the churches just in Grand Rapids alone, even churches that profess to have the name Reformed, we need unity. We need it desperately. All of these things we still need in 2022. We still need to instruct our youth. We still need to be informed about the Lord's Prayer, the Law, and the Apostles' Creed. And we need confessional unity in our Reformed churches. Brothers and sisters, I want to suggest to you at Trinity United Reformed Church and in Reformed churches all over the world, we still need to confess the Heidelberg Catechism and our Reformed documents. Now, I'm playing devil's advocate this evening, but I want to ask you one more question. Unity in what? We need unity, but what do we need unity in? Look at question one of your Heidelberg, which serves sort of as a setting forth of the purpose of this catechism. It famously begins with these words, what is your comfort? personal question. A question that not only every person in this room, but every person who's ever lived needs to answer. You see, we will all seek comfort somewhere. Nobody doubts the seriousness of life and the enigma of death compels humans to have a support to which we cling in trials in life. One commentator on the Catechism says, the problems of life call for a solution. The valley of death calls for a way out. So the instructor asks you, what is your solution to life's problems? What is your way out when you are in the darkness of the valley? Again, quoting your sinus, who wrote this catechism and specifically chose the word comfort. He says, comfort is a deliberation of the heart whereby we juxtapose our misery and the grace with which Christ earned so that in considering that grace, our grief is tempered. Put it another way, he's saying, what is it that gets you through long days and seasons of depression? What is it that gets you through and helps you in times of tragedy? What is it that brings you peace even when death is knocking on the door? So I ask you, my dear friends, this morning, what is your comfort? The Catechism says from the outset, there's only one real lasting comfort. 
All other comforts will disappoint. The only real lasting comfort is the comfort that comes from God. The only sufficient comfort for our valleys. The only comfort that does not disappoint. The only comfort that can anchor us in this life is Jesus Christ. And that's our theme this evening. It's not in your bulletin. So for you note takers, the theme is comfort knowing that I will never be moved in Jesus Christ. Christians receive comfort knowing that we will never be moved in Jesus Christ. And so, I have three headings for you this evening. Comfort as Christ's possession. Comfort in, in God's work. And comfort in eternal life. That's comfort as Christ's possession. Comfort in God's work. And comfort in eternal life. Let's look at the first point this evening. Comfort as Christ's possession. We read in Romans 8 that the Apostle Paul took great comfort in belonging to Jesus Christ. If you remember, Romans 7, the chapter preceding Romans 8, Paul is describing in that chapter the plight of Adamic humanity. That even though men and women know the law of God, and even though they desire to do what the law commanded them to do, they could not do what they wanted to do because of the power of indwelling sin. He is describing in chapter 7 what it means to be in Adam. That we are helpless against sin. We are dead in our trespasses. It binds us and we, are, we have a disposition towards evil. But in chapter 8, verse 1, Paul rejoices in God's resolution to the human predicament. The great resolution to sin, to suffering, and to hell is these words. Therefore, or there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul, remember in the book of Romans, is wrestling with that idea of justification. And he's writing about it at length all the way back from Romans 3, verse 21. He has been marshalling evidence that if you belong to Jesus Christ, if you've been justified in Jesus Christ, then you have been released from the curse of the law. Because in justification, Jesus' righteousness, holiness, and perfect satisfaction, says the Apostle Paul, are then given to you. And this language of condemnation, he says there's no condemnation. But this is a word Paul frequently is picking up on throughout the book of Romans. And Romans chapter 5 He uses that language of condemnation in order to illustrate what it means to be in Adam. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 5, verse 16. He says in verse 16, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. 
But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, and then he says, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. But here you see, twice Paul is using that language of condemnation. That through Adam's trespass, through his transgression in the Garden of Eden, all of us have been condemned who are in Adam. God's law becomes our condemnation rather than the promise of the Gospel. See, every time we read God's law, we are reminded that we have not kept God's law perfectly. And therefore, we are not worthy of judgment. Or we are worthy of judgment, I should say. But God's resolution to our sins, God's resolution to being in Adam, to being worthy of punishment, is to be in or with Jesus Christ. To belong to Him. See, 164 times in the Apostle Paul's 13 letters, he uses this term, in Christ Jesus. And when Paul uses that term, to be in Christ, he is referring to an intimate and personal relationship with Christ and a sinner who has been saved. He is saying to be in Christ is to have a status change from being in Adam to being changed into being in Christ. It's a status change from being once declared guilty to being declared free. Humanity's depravity is in Adam. Awful sinfulness is in Adam. But it's been countered by God's wondrous grace. It's been countered by being, by belonging in Christ. So the question is, how do we get into Christ? How, does, how do we become with Him? How do we become His possession? But that's what Paul is rejoicing in in Romans 8. He says, now no condemnation. Referring to a new event in redemptive history. You see, in our birth, we're all in Adam. That's our status quo. We are born in sin. Lord's Day 3 talks about which we'll get to in a couple of Sundays. As we know, we're unable to follow God's law as we ought. The law is a reflection of our God's goodness and it shows us our unrighteousness. It's impotent. It's powerless. Not because it's not good, but because it's showing us that we cannot fulfill it. The law binds us up in our own unrighteousness. But Christ, Paul says in verse 3, is the righteousness of God. And He has executed His redemptive work for us. He has been crucified for His people. 1 Corinthians 1.13 God made Christ to be sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He has become a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. He gave Himself for our sins and died for the ungodly. 
Paul later in his letters, especially his later to the letter to the Colossians, will pick up on this theme of being in Christ. And he says in Colossians 3, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life was hidden with Christ in God. This is a huge concept to the Apostle Paul because there's an identity change. There's a status change. You go from being in Adam, which in Romans 7, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? To in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul is saying, there is no condemnation for you. What changed? Not the work of our hands. Not our righteousness but being adopted, becoming in with part of the body of Christ. That is that God no longer sees us as His disobedient children, but God sees us as His perfect children, adopted in Christ. Beloved, what this means, a word of application is, let us be absolutely clear, if you are a Christian this evening, God has declared you free, clean, and pure. And there will be times when Satan wants to afflict us and he will bring up past transgressions. But we need to be dwelling on who we are in Christ. Belonging to Christ does not mean that Jesus paid for most of your sins. Or 95% of your sins, just not that one big one. No, remember what we sang this evening, Jesus paid it all. When Satan brings up our past and tries to condemn us, we need to be preachers. Preach to ourselves about what Christ has done for us. There has been a status change. We don't belong to Adam any longer. We belong to Christ. But Paul also refers to something here in Romans 8, which can sometimes be perplexing, which he refers to the law of the Spirit of life. Now, this is not referring to us being freed essentially from the Ten Commandments as some posit it. But what the Apostle Paul is trying to show you in Romans 8 is that you have been freed from the condemning power of the law. It's not that we are freed from the law and therefore we can sin to our heart's content. No, the Apostle Paul says to that in the book of Romans, God forbid. No, what the Apostle Paul says now is the law of the Spirit of life is that now we obey God's law not as a means of obtaining salvation, but we obey God's law as the law of gratitude as we'll talk about in the third part of the Heidelberg Catechism. The law goes from condemning us to showing us as how we are to live our lives in Jesus Christ. Now we want to move into our second point here, verses 28 through 30. We want to see comfort in God's work. Comfort in God's work. One of the great Dutch Reformed theologians, Herman Ritterboss, he said this. He said, in these profound and moving words in Romans 8, Paul delineates the unshakable firmness 
and intimacy of relationship in which God draws and keeps His own to Himself. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, what we need to see is that God's plan for our lives, His saving love for the church, it is concrete. It is unshakable. It is invincible. He is the Sovereign. As we learned this morning, this doesn't mean that God will spare us from all grief. Believers like the unbelievers in this world will, will endure many trials. But what this means that is no matter what befalls us in this life, nothing can harm us, nothing can come to us unless God first permits it. Isn't that what the Heidelberg Catechism says? It says, He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. This is question of the catechism is trying to encourage us to trust in God's sovereign plan. The Apostle Paul picks up on this as well. Verse 28, or I should say the catechism picks up on what the Apostle Paul is saying. It says in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And this, of course, is one of the most treasured promises of the Bible. That because God loves the saints, all things cooperate for our good. Not only prosperity, but also adversity. Not only joy and happiness, but also suffering and sadness. The Bible teaches us that evil designs are overruled by God. The Scriptures say that the good angels, that Satan and his hosts, that the nations and the rulers, that rain and thunder, streams, mountains, clouds, stars and their course, even down to the hairs on top of your head, are divinely ordered and directed for your good. That doesn't mean everything is going to feel good. It doesn't mean everything is going to seem good. But it will be for your good. Your ultimate good. Your salvation in Jesus Christ. There's a great example of this in the Old Testament. I am absolutely sure that Joseph did not feel good when his brothers betrayed him, threw him down a well, and pretended that a wild beast ate him. I am sure it did feel good when his brothers sold him into slavery, when he went to prison, when he was betrayed by Potiphar's wife. But as he's reflecting on his life at the end of the book of Genesis, what does he say when he reveals himself to his brothers? He goes, as for you, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. He could look back on his life and say that everything God did, He ordered it according to His perfect plan for my good. He was able to save His family. So too for us, we can trust God's sovereign plan in our lives. In the trial, we often can't see how God can or could or will work it out for good. But the Bible's promise to you, dear saint, is that He will. 
But not only that, the Apostle Paul says in verses 29 and 30, not only can we trust God's sovereign plan for our lives, but we can trust God's sovereign plan for salvation. Now allow me to just make a little side note here, a footnote. Um, There have been whole PhDs written on these two verses. And I'm about to try to sum it up in two paragraphs. So go easy on me. But I want to give you one point to take away from these two verses. And so if you meet someone with a PhD, you can talk to them about it. The Apostle Paul is saying in verses 29 and 30 is that God alone saves sinners. That salvation from start to finish is a miracle of Almighty God. It's a miracle. The Apostle starts, he says, those whom God foreknew. Now this doesn't mean that God looked down the corridor of time and chose or saw who would respond to Him in faith and so He elects them. No, the word know in the Bible often can be translated as loved. Remember all those Old Testament patriarchs, they took a wife and then it says they knew them, referring to an intimate love with their spouses. We could translate this as God foreloved His people. He had a personal, intimate knowledge of each individual Christian before they were even born. And those whom He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, verse 29, that's those whom He chose. And then one day they were born, and one day they heard the Gospel. God opened their heart and He called them to Himself. But the great problem of Romans... The question that Paul is trying to answer is how can those who are called, who are sinful people, come into the presence and be the children of a holy God? How can sinners be in relationship with God? It's essentially the whole question of the Bible even in some ways. That was the purpose of all those animal sacrifices so that there was some payment for sins that they could be in the presence of God. The purpose of the temple and the veil and the Ark of the Covenant and all of this was to try to give them a way, a pathway into the presence of God. How can sinful men and women belong to God? And this is Paul's point in Romans. Christ died to justify you. Christ died to give you His perfect righteousness, holiness, and the satisfaction of the law. And the work of God is so perfect, says the Apostle Paul. The work of God is so unbreakable that if God has set His love upon you, you will respond in faith and you will never be moved from His almighty hand. One of my professors said it like this, all our lives, we will, we will go through our lives thinking it was us who held on to Christ. But when we get to heaven's gates, we will see it was on us who relied on Him. Or us, sorry, who held on to Him. But it was Christ who held on to us. This means, my dear friends, a word of application. 
I want you to just look around this room for a minute. And you see the saints around you? God has set His everlasting love upon them. Even the annoying ones. And they're out there. Even the ones you might say are even unlovable. The ones you don't want to be around. But if they belong to Christ, they are loved by God. They are His bride. And they are to be treated as such. We need to love one another as the objects of Christ's love. Not because we like each other sometimes. Even though we want to like each other. Not because we want to see you but because they are the objects of love in Jesus Christ. That's the heartbeat of the church's love for one another. That Christ first loved, therefore we love. Thirdly and finally, we need to see comfort in eternal life. So we've seen uh, comfort in belonging to Christ. We need to be in Christ. We've seen comfort in God's work. But there is also comfort in eternal life. Finally, the Apostle Paul addresses our security in Christ. Belonging to Christ is not only a benefit in this life, but we are also comforted in the assurance of eternal life. The Catechism says, Because I belong to Him, Christ by His Holy Spirit assures me of eternal life. 21 times, I should, actually sorry, 19 times in, the book, in Romans chapter 8, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who applies these benefits to our lives. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life. Now let's pause for one moment and consider this. We don't realize the gravity of the catechism statement here. Think of this. We are sinners. How can we have any assurance How can we claim that eternal life is ours? How can we claim to be children of God? More often we resonate with Paul's words in Romans 7, wretched man that I am, than Paul's words in Romans 8. But beloved, do not miss this this evening. The reason we can have assurance, the reason we can be called Christians, is because the guilt of sin has been atoned for. That death has lost its sting. Eternal life can be assured to be ours because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul's resounding conclusion in Romans 8 is God is for us in the cross. Amen? Paul says you can have assurance of eternal life because God the Father sent Christ to die on the cross. This means then that our assurance is not based on ourselves, our works, what church we belong to and have membership with. No, our assurance is that God, or our assurance, I should say, is in God's work of love for you upon the cross. And Paul illustrates this with four rhetorical questions 
Look with me in Romans 8. He says, who can be against us? Uh, Verses 31 and 32. Who can bring a charge against us? Verse 33. Who will condemn us? Verse 34. And who can separate us from His love? Verses 35-39. And And His answer four times is nobody, 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 nobody. Who can be against us? Nobody, God having not spared His own Son, will give us all things. Who can bring a charge against us? Nobody, God has justified. Who will condemn us? Nobody, Christ Jesus died, rose, and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from His love? Nobody, God's love in Christ has made us more than conquerors. This gets back to what the Catechism says. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood. All four of Paul's questions and answers are centered in the cross. We have assurance of eternal life because of the cross. Nobody can prevail against those who belong to Christ. God is for us. God has justified us. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ now prays, intercedes for the saints. And we shall never be moved from His love. This is the believer's security. This is the believer's certainty. God has loved me in Christ. This, says the catechism, is why we obey God. Getting back to Paul's point in Romans 8. This is why we serve Him. This is why we love Him. Not because we are trying to earn our salvation, but because we are thankful for His sacrifice on the cross. It's gratitude. Not our salvation. And you see, it's in light of the cross, says the Heidelberg Catechism, that makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. So the final application this morning is simply this. If your hope isn't in the cross this evening, and you seek to obey Christ, His law, it will only frustrate you and lead you to moralism, you will become a Pharisee with no lasting comfort. But if you have seen a vision, now I'm not speaking of Pentecostal vision, but if you, with the eyes of faith, have seen Christ, that is what brings lasting comfort. Seeing His blood poured out. Seeing His love and the salvation who are offered to all who would come to Him for mercy. He promises that He will answer to all who call upon His name. And He will save. And if you do these things, you too can know the eternal, invincible comfort of salvation. Let's conclude this morning. The second question asked this Second question and answer asks this. What must we do to live and die in this comfort? First, or three, first, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am to be delivered from all this, my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such a deliverance. 
When we think of living and dying in comfort, sometimes we can think of lounging in a lazy boy with the Blue Jays on TV and good food. But as Kevin DeYoung says, our catechism describes something much different as comfort. It describes something deeper, something higher, something richer, something sweeter. We find comfort, uh, close quote, we find comfort by admitting our sin instead of excusing it. We find comfort by trusting someone else instead of ourselves. We find comfort in living to give thanks instead of living to be thanked. The next section of the Catechism will seek to expose our sin and misery. The next three Lord's Days are about guilt. It's going to be hard. We're going to see the depth of our sins. But we can endure it when we remember how much greater is God's grace. How much greater is the salvation we have in Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give You thanks this Lord's Day evening that we can be found in Christ by faith. There is so much comfort in belonging to Him and living for Him. We can live and die in the joy of this comfort. Lord, help us to respond in faith. We pray that if there be any among us here this evening who have not yet responded in faith, who have been trying to obey the law of God, to try to be a good person, to try to be righteous in and of themselves. Lord, open our eyes to show us the sin and death of being in Adam. But Lord, also show us the greatness of salvation in Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in His name. Amen.